We're going to continue with the uh, study of the book of Jonah. And I hope that you have been reading through this book. It's a short read, but I would encourage you to read it over and over a few times just to get a good grasp of the um, book itself. And today we're going to be looking at this title as we consider the verses from verse 8 to verse 10, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I've taken this title from a song, by the way, written by William Cooper. And um, I'm going to quote some of the lyrics of that song at the end of the message. So please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1, and we'll reread the first part of that chapter and end at verse 10. So Jonah 1, 1 to 10. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jonah 1, 1 to 10. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Cried out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, boarded it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. However, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And the sailors became afraid, and every man cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the stern of the ship, had lain down and fallen sound asleep. And so the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let's cast lots so that we may find out on whose account this catastrophe has struck us. So they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this catastrophe struck us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And so he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became extremely afraid, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And Father, we pray that you would grant us insight, light, that we would glean from this passage that which you have in store for us, and that we would walk in the light of the truth that you impart to us today. We do not want to simply hear your word, to help us to obey to honor you, to bring you glory. And this we ask in the wonderful name of Christ. 
Amen. Please be seated. So up to now, we've noticed that a premier servant of God uh, has gone AWOL. Jonah the prophet just packed his bags one day and leaves Israel and goes in the opposite direction that God had sent him to. And this was so unlike him. Jonah was a faithful, obedient prophet. And up to this critical moment in his life, he had always obeyed. But now that God had asked him to go to the wicked people in Nineveh, uh, Jonah chafes. He uh, can't bring himself to obey. To warn them, the wicked Ninevites, of impending doom was the last thing on his mind. He could not do it. He refused to obey. And we're going to see later on why. I mentioned in part uh, about two weeks ago or three weeks ago that the Ninevites were people who had invaded Israel on several occasions. In fact, if you read the other Old Testament prophets, especially Nahum, it speaks about the destruction of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And uh, who knows, maybe loved ones, friends had been taken captive and killed in those incursions from the Assyrians. And so Nineveh was for Jonah the forbidden land, the forbidden place. Just no way that he could bring himself to go to the Syrian people, the Ninevites, and tell them, 40 days and you're finished. Notice that God did not tell Jonah to go and preach a message of repentance. Just tell them, their wickedness has come up to me, and they will be destroyed. That's all he had to say. Nothing more. But for Jonah, that was too much. I'm not even going to say that. Just wipe them off the face of the earth. That's fine with me. I don't like them. They've done us much harm. We've never invaded their land. We've never done them harm. They have inflicted harm. Just wipe them off the face of the earth. And if you look at the northern part of the land of Israel, eventually they were overcome by the Assyrians. They amalgamated with the Assyrians, and the people of Israel basically defected. And that's why oftentimes you'll read, and the Samaritans, they were called Samaritans, and Samaria, or Ephraim, but never God's people. So later we see, after uh, he takes off and buys a ticket to Tarshish, that uh, God appoints a storm. And if you go through the book of Jonah, you'll see this word appoints, especially if you read the NASB. And here God appointed a storm that impacted not only the Jonah, but the sailors who were manning the ship. So Jonah doesn't get targeted alone, as we saw two weeks ago, but all the sailors on board get targeted. All storms in the life of God's children are sent by God, all of them. Not one storm, not one. Remember this, please. Not one storm is your doing or the doing of the devil or the doing of people or others, whatever. All storms are sent by God. 
Sometimes they come because we are disobedient. Other times they come because we are obedient. I already looked, we already looked at that two weeks ago. Regardless, they are sent by God. And through the storm, God works in the lives of his people. If I look at all the storms in my life, some of them more intense than others. I've had storms growing up. I've had storms in my home. I've had storms uh, at, uh, and, 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 and as a student. I've had storms in the ministry. Storms of all kinds. If I look at all the storms, during the storm, all I wanted was stop the storm. But as I look back, I see how God used those moments to shape me into the person that I am today. So regardless, all storms are sent by God, and God works through the storm to make us the people that he wants us to be. God disciplines us, and he alone determines the size, the duration, the people who will be impacted by the storm. And we should thank him when storms come our way. They are never meant to destroy us, but to sanctify us, to remove the dross, to remove that which should not stay in the lives of his children. We are reminded of this truth in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where we read, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe, detest, push away his rebuke. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. The terrifying storm in the life of the prophet Jonah was sent by the Lord himself to discipline and correct his servant, correct his perspective, and adjust his ministry so that he would repent of his ways, but also to awaken the heathen sailors who were in the dark and to awaken them to the reality of the true God. And so today we're going to consider some axioms. Axioms are self-evident truths. Okay, axioms. It's, it's a short word. Sounds fancy, but it's all self-evident truth. It's daylight outside, right? That's an axiom. It's a self-evident truth. So we're going to look at certain axioms uh, that stand out when God's people are exposed in their state of disobedience. So an axiom that is there, self-evident truth, that is there when God's people disobey. What axioms, what self-evident truths are there? First thing, we look at the humiliation. Humiliation. God's people are humiliated. Not once, not twice, repeatedly. Why? Because God's people sin. Christians fall. Christians disobey. Christians sin. And then they said to him, verse 8, they meaning the sailors, tell us now, because remember the lots had been cast, right? Tell us now, on whose account has this catastrophe struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now, this is interesting. Every Israelite 
Every Israelite, keep this in mind, wore tassels. You know why they wore tassels? Tassels were like fringes at the hem of their garments. Remember the, the woman with the uh, hemorrhaging uh, disease. She hemorrhaged for 12 years, touched the hem, the tassels. That's what she touched, the tassels of Christ. Tassels were worn by every man, every Hebrew, by every Israelite, those who were faithful, to remind them of the commandments that they were to obey. Now, why didn't they recognize him as a, as a Hebrew or as, as someone who came from Israel? Because he wasn't wearing his tassels. That's why. Had he been wearing his tassels, oh yeah, you're from that country, right? You've seen Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews. They walk on, they still wear them, by the way, and they're, they're prayer shawls. And you'll see at the end, these fringes, right? Those are called tassels. And some of them wear them at the hem, but they don't wear garments anymore. So, so now they wear this prayer shawl. At the end of this prayer shawl, they have these tassels. So when Jonah boarded the ship, he boarded like everyone else. No one knew that he was one of God's people. He purposely hid that. Has that ever happened to you? You hide the fact that you are a Christian. You don't want others to know that you belong to the Lord. Well, that's what Jonah did. So now having exhausted all their navigational skills and having prayed to every possible God on the list that they could think of, every possible God, to Astart and to Shemok and every one of them, Baal and every one of them, calling out to these gods, they finally decided, as we saw, it threw Lot, and the Lot fell on Jonah. Of course, God directed the casting of the Lots. And the culprit is exposed. He is uncovered by the sailors who have no knowledge of God. This is not the first time that we see the godly humiliated in Scripture. We see it with David. That's a very well-known passage, that he is uncovered for the adultery and the murder that he committed. But we have another example in Scripture of a godly man called Abraham. He was a man of faith. He was a man who loved the Lord and walked with God. He was called God's friend. And we see in Genesis chapter 20 a puzzling passage. And when I've read this the first time and many times afterwards, I said, how could Abraham do such a thing? Read it with me. You couldn't get an idea. Genesis 20 verses 1 to 8. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and Negev just means south, by the way, and settled between Kadesh and Shur. And he lived, this was, by the, way, by the way, it's always Canaan, but it wasn't called Israel at the time. And he lived for a time in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, um, she is my sister. And so Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent men and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream that night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you kill a nation even though blameless? Did he himself not say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
And then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die. You and all who are yours. And so Abimelech got up early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their presence, and the people were greatly frightened. When you read a text like this, and by the way, this was the second time he did it. He did it once in Egypt and here in Gerar, once with Pharaoh and now with Abimelech. And Abimelech is simply a title. It simply means king. So, when he, Abraham, did this, you would think, well, that's straight out lying. God cannot be with Abraham now. He is lying. But why is he lying? He's lying because he's afraid. Sarah was a beautiful woman. She, at this point, she must have been around in her 80s. And, I know, sorry, 70s. He's, in his, he's older. In her 70s. And so he's saying, look, they're going to kill me for you. You're a beautiful woman. That's what they do. When they want a woman, they'll just wipe out the competition and they'll take you. Just tell them you're my sister. That's all. Just for a little while. Now, when you read something like that, it's disturbing. For most of us today, it's disturbing. But if we had we lived in those days, we would have understood Abraham. Because Sarah understood Abraham. Sarah went along and said, of course, I'll do it for your sake. I don't want to lose you. And so Sarah played along. He's my brother. And she, he went, she's my sister. My brother, my sister, my brother, my sister. And King Abimelech, or Abimelech, saw this woman and said, I want her. I have already another 50 wives and so many concubines. I want her too. And he takes Sarah. Sarah plays along and goes into the harem. They prepare her and so doll her up and cleanse her and all that kind of stuff to get her ready so that she can go into bed with Abimelech. And that's when God speaks to Abimelech and tells him what told him. But what he did, Abraham, was humiliating. He humiliated himself by disobeying, by not trusting. He was a man of faith. Abraham is called the friend of God. And you would think that Abraham would have acted differently. But no man of God is perfect in 100%. There are areas in his life or her life where they still have to grow, where they still have to trust, where they have to become more Christ-like, where they have to grow in their walk with the Lord. And this is, where, this is what happens to Abraham. That's what happened to Jonah. Jonah was a man who disobeyed. Abraham was a man who lied. Both were uncovered. Both were humiliated. In Psalm 12, verse 1, David says these words, Help, Lord, for the godly person has come to an end. For the faithful have disappeared from the sons of mankind. What is David saying? He looks at himself and he's struggling with his walk with God. He looks at the other godly people in the midst of the country of Israel and he sees they're diminishing in strength. They don't have the same degree of faithfulness. They're ceasing. It happens. They become weak, discouraged. ESV renders it, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. 
That's what happened to Jonah. He wasn't walking in faithfulness. Abraham falls short. In this world, we can be so overwhelmed that instead of honoring the Lord and bringing him glory, we will fall short. And so instead of standing out as godly people, we blend in with the surroundings and we become like murky waters instead of having that river of righteousness that flows from us. Our souls are not transparent. Our life is marked with sin and ungodly behavior. How's it, what's the cure? Confession. Confession. And sometimes when we don't confess, God brings us with our backs to the wall and we have to confess. He did it with Jonah. He did it with David. He did it with Abraham. We are humiliated in that moment. We are embarrassed. We realize it. And that's good though. There's confession that follows after that. And so, it may have happened to you. You call yourself a Christian, but you worked this way, or you did this. You said these words. You speak vulgar language, or you cheat, or you lie. What are you doing with, with your finances? What are you doing with your life? I know one of the things that used to turn me off about Christians as a teenager was the fact that I would see these people pray and raise their voices and sometimes even give a prophetic word. And then I would look at their lives a little closer and I'd see such inconsistency. I'd say, isn't it better if you just to stay quiet? Of course, I got it to show the filth in my heart so that I could see my filth first. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When we grow in Christlikeness, that's how we stand out. We stand out with humility. We stand out with gentleness. We stand out with patience. We bear with one another in love because we know that people make mistakes. They, come, they fall short. We're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's growing. There's a growing to do. And Paul says, that's how you walk, worthy in the Lord, a manner worthy of the calling. So after the humiliation, after he's exposed, there's a confession. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. I read this passage over and over. I prayed over it because it just touched me. It struck me in a certain way. I am a Hebrew. I don't wear my tassels now. I'm incognito. You can't tell that I'm a Hebrew, but I am a Hebrew. Because he starts speaking, and from their, his language and from his accent, they could tell that he was a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven. A few words. Oh, oh, how telling they are. Can you imagine the shock on these sailors' faces as the boat is being battered and it's going up and down, water is coming into the boat and, and it's about to break up and they're holding on to their life and he utters, he utters these words and they're just shocked. What did he just say? Now these sailors may have heard about Israel they may have heard about the people called the Hebrews. But this experience was in all likelihood their first 
with the God of Israel and one of his prophets. It was a baptism by fire. Immediately they understood that this God is different than their gods. Their gods are weak and powerless. Um, the psalmist in Psalm 115 verse 3 to 8 uh, describes the difference between the true God of Israel and the gods of men, false gods. In verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. First thing, that's his abode, his dwelling place. He does whatever he pleases. God is fully autonomous, right? Four, they're idols. Now he turns to the idols and the gods of men. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Our God has no hands, but he can feel. Our God has no eyes, but he can see. Our God has no nose, he can smell. See, our God is invisible. That's the point that the psalmist is trying to make. He has no ears. We can't see him, but he hears, he sees, he moves. And things happen when he moves. There is no God like the God of heaven. One of the many traits about our God is that he is intimately acquainted with all the ways of his children. And he holds those who are his accountable. And that was obvious that day. You see, these pagans had gods, but their gods did not hold them accountable. It was only a transactional relationship they had with these gods, not the people of God. We are not living in a transactional relationship. God, you give me this, and I'll give you this. There's none of that. He is our God. He owns us. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is the one who sits on the throne. We do his bidding. It's a totally different thing. And the first thing Jonah says about himself is that he is a Hebrew. Why a Hebrew? Why not an Israelite? Why didn't he say that? Why would he say, I am a Hebrew? Well, he could have said, I'm a Jew. Because he doesn't come from the tribe of Judah. He's from Zebulon. That's a northern tribe. It's the same area from where Jesus, came, uh, Jesus grew up, rather. So, he is from Zebulon. And he could have very well said, I am an Israelite. Because that's what it was still called, Israel. So why did he call himself that? Why did he call himself a Hebrew? Who were the Hebrews? Well, all Israelites descend from Abraham... And Abraham was known as Abraham the Hebrew. Abraham was not an Israelite because there was no Israel in the days of Abraham. It was Canaan, the land of Canaan. The Amorites were living there. The Girgashites and, the, and, and all the other people of the Amorites that were the breakup groups. He was a Hebrew. And so Jonah chooses that word instead of calling himself an Israelite. He identifies with Abraham and not with Israel. Why? Because Israel had become a den of idolatry. The Israelites were idol worshippers. Had he said I'm an Israelite, that would have said nothing. Well, they worship idols like we worship idols. What difference is there? No, 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 goes. I'm an 
I'm a Hebrew. I trace myself back. I associate with the man who walked with God, was the friend of God, the man who's a, a man of faith, Abraham. Not with Israel, unfortunately. Israel is now corrupt. He calls himself a Hebrew. The second thing he says about himself is, I fear the Lord God of heaven. I could hear someone say, he fears God and he, <laughs> he goes AWOL, he just takes off. How could someone who fears God do such a thing? It doesn't mean that we perfectly fear the Lord. Right? There are, like I said, there are areas in our lives that we need to grow. But Jonah was a man who feared the Lord. And he says it very clearly. This is not my best moment right now. I'm hiding the fact that I was a man of God, that I'm a prophet, that I'm a Hebrew. My tassels are not here. I'm incognito. I've been sleeping while you've been battling the storm. That's right. It's not my best moment. But I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. These words are riveting. I remember doing a study on the fear of the Lord. It kept me one year reading everything of what the Bible says, everything on the subject of the fear of the Lord. Because I never would uh, call myself a man who feared God. I said, I love God. I enjoy being in the presence of the Lord when we would come together as his people. I read his word. I'm a Christian. I would call my, but I would never say, I fear the Lord. But when I understood this topic, when the Lord showed me the importance of fearing him, oh, how it changed my life. How it changed my life. What a revealing statement. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to hold God in the highest regard, to love what he loves and to detest what he detests. And there's many script, many uh, men of God who, in Scripture, we are told, feared him. I can think of Job. It says that no one on earth in his day feared God like Job feared God. In other words, he constantly, unceasingly feared the Lord. He lived and treasured this fear. It was not that he was afraid of God. Because it says that God was his company. He speaks of God in terms of endearment. God would speak to Job regularly, and Job enjoyed the presence of the Lord. He feared him. Please understand one thing, that if God speaks to someone, it doesn't mean that they fear the Lord. I've had people come to me and say, I've had a word from the Lord. It means nothing. It means nothing. I'll tell you why. Abimelech was a man who did not fear God, and God appeared to him in a dream, God spoke to him, rather, in a dream. He was a man who feared God. God told him, you're a dead man. Spoke to him in a dream. So the fact that God speaks to us, it doesn't mean that we are fearing the Lord. It's when we walk with God. It's when we obey the Lord. It's when we treasure his presence. And when we love what he loves and detests what he detests. And we're fearing the Lord. How do you know if the, you have a healthy Fear of the Lord. It's when the fear of everything else diminishes. For example, we, it's natural to be afraid of uh, sickness. It's natural to be afraid of being financially broke. It's natural to be afraid of being lonely. It's natural to be afraid of the future. 
What will happen? Will there be third world war? You know, all, all these fears are very natural to have. When we fear God, these fears diminish. You could say that the fear of the Lord strangles all other fear. But when the fear of the Lord is not there, these fears are alive. And they govern us. They direct us. Now, because now my life is lived more in the fear of the Lord than anything else, I have less fear of anything else. That doesn't mean I don't battle my fears. But whenever I do, I quickly go back to this very issue, this very topic, this endearing topic of the fear of the Lord. And I ask him to do something that David asked him in Psalm 86, verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. See, our hearts have many compartments. We have a compartment for our wife. We have a compartment for our children. We have a compartment that, speak, that thinks about ourselves and our health and so forth. And so we have fears. We have a fear for our spouse. We have a fear for our children. It's normal to have these fears, right? So what do we do with these fears? Do we let them bubble and continue to brew in our lives and govern our lives and, and, and basically be, be the tyrants of our lives? Or do we subdue them? But we don't have the strength to subdue these fears. It's one thing to say, don't be afraid. It's another thing to actually live enough so that you subdue that fear. And I'm a man who has a lot of fears, many fears. And the older I've grown, the more I've noticed that my fears have multiplied. And that is why, thankfully, God has revealed this wonderful truth to me. Because it is this wonderful truth that gives us victory over all other fears. The fear of the Lord strangles all other fears. The fear of man, the Bible says, is a trap. It's a trap. But the fear of God is not a trap. It's freedom. You're like an eagle soaring into the air. How wonderful it is to fear the Lord. So let this be our prayer. Unite my heart to fear your name. So Jonah is basically saying, I don't fear your gods. I don't even fear this storm. I fear nothing. God could kill me and that's okay with him. That's perfectly okay. I fear God. And that, those words must have just filled them with fear. Because <laughs> it says they were terrified. Then the declaration. Verse 9. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Now, we may read something like this, these few last words, and be tempted to gloss over them, but we should really stop and pay attention, close attention, because they're important. We need to let them sink in. Who made the sea and the dry land. The very sea that you are fighting right now, and the dry land that you so much long for, the God of heaven, whom I know and serve and fear, is the God who made them. What is happening today in many evangelical circles is a raging debate over the six-day creation account, the account as narrated in the book of Genesis and repeated throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture. Now, it's understandable when a secular man does not believe in the six-day account, in the creation account. It's understandable when someone who doesn't know God Embraces evolution. It's, it's quite understandable. 
But when believers embrace the evolutionary account, it's just mind-boggling. By doing that, you are undermining Scripture. You are unraveling the very word that you claim is the word of God. You can't have it both ways. Either it is the word of God or it's not the word of God. Either it is inerrant or it's not inerrant. Either it is sufficient or it's not sufficient. Many Christians struggle with the idea of God creating the cosmos in six days. As if that were a real difficult feat for him. I was listening to the other day, I think it's Tyson. Kevin Tyson, I think it is. And he was speaking about the, the unique, the fine-tuned universe in which we live. It's finely tuned. Of course, I, to, I, would, have said to, I would have said to him, tell me, this fine-tuned universe <laughs> that we live in, that every star and every planet, I'm not sure you heard about this asteroid that's coming our way, is just going to pass right by us. But it's relatively close. It's a few thousand miles away. But I mean, it's still close, right? Everything moves in synergy. Everything is wonderfully placed. Who could have done that? Really? That it just evolved into that? For Jonah, the issue was non-debatable. The God of heaven is the creator. And Jonah stands with a host of other prophets who made the same assertion. I can read you one passage after another. But I'll read you just two. There's not more than that. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For this is what the Lord says. And by the way, Isaiah speaks about this repeatedly. Obviously, the people of God in his day questioned God's ability. And so God answers back. This is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. Did not create it as a waste place. You see, if you believe in evolution, you have to believe there was a waste place. It had to be waste. Right? But God, God's word says, there is no such thing as a waste place. But he formed it to be what? Inhabited. God did that. Now, I want you to look at the word form. In Hebrew, the word is yazar. Yazar means, this is what it means, to form, to shape. Think of a potter with clay as he shapes and molds that piece of clay into a vase. That's what the word here, yazar, means. Now, if God had not done that, he would never have said that about himself. He formed, he shaped. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the world has been created by the word of God. God spoke and his word was powerful enough to bring into existence that which is visible. So that what is seen, pay attention, so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. So if evolution were true, this statement would be false. In other words, it wasn't that something is there and that something evolved to something else and that other thing evolved to something else. It's just that, that doesn't hold water with Scripture. It's the invisible that brought into existence the invisible. 
sorry. It's the invisible that brought into existence the visible. It's not the visible that developed into another form of visible life. No. To believe in evolution, you must discount the creation account as presented by Scripture. Evolutionists claim that life began as a living cell that cloned itself in reproduction over and over to continue in that process as it is today and will continue. And this all happened on its own by pure chance. God's Word claims the opposite. It tells us that the visible came from the invisible. In Him was life, says John. In Him was life. He is the life. The aseity of God, there's a teaching that says that God in and of Himself is self-sustaining. The God has life. Nothing else has life. We have life that derives from God. We are sustained by Him. He Himself is self-sustaining. And from Him came all things. And everything is held by the power of His Word. That's what Jonah is saying to these pagans who are trying to come out of this dilemma of a storm. Your gods cannot do anything about the storm because only the true creator of the water, of the sea, and of the land can make it stop. It won't stop until he says, stop. It's a declaration contrary to what the heathens made. See, these heathens worshipped gods and made idols and to represent those gods. That's, what, that's why they had idols. They had a god and they had idols and these idols were in their homes and if they were wealthy enough or if they weren't wealthy, they would make miniature gods, uh, idols of their favorite god. And then there was a temple dedicated to that god, whether it be Baal or Chemosh or Astart and so forth. And they would have temples dedicated and they would go to worship and celebrate their idol because that idol represented their god. But they had no creation account. These gods did not reveal themselves. They knew very little about them. They came up with their own <clears throat> fantastical ideas about them and how they were capricious and, and how they were whimsical and how they were angry. Why are they angry? Well, we think, and they would have to figure out why these gods were angry, and then they would start making vows and they would start sacrificing and so forth. That's what happened on that boat while Jonah was asleep. And Jonah says, it's all to no avail. God has sent the storm. God alone can bring it to a halt. Isaiah 45, verse 12, when God speaks of himself to his people in these terms, it is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their lights. Unfortunately, because we believe in science more than we believe in the word, and of course, we suffer for that because we think science will get us out of all our problems and science and technology will bring us into a better place. And then we suffer for that kind of belief. But when we believe in God, when we fear the Lord, and when we believe his word, we find ourselves in a different position, in a different position altogether. And the people of God in the days of Isaiah could not come to terms that God had created all of this. Go figure. And this was the people of God, the people of Judah. Well, they, being in a, in a very 
in a hot pickle right now because of the storm, um, become extremely afraid, verse 10 says. And they said to him, to Jonah, how could you do this? For the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. By the way, the presence of the Lord, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, is mentioned a few times, three times in this chapter. And as I said uh, a few weeks back, it simply means that he fled from where God had, uh, had uh, been recognized as the God of that nation, which is Israel. So he flees from Israel. He flees from the place where the temple is. He flees from anything having to do with the God of Israel. Of course, he knew that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere at the same time. Right? He knew that God's center is everywhere and that his circumference is nowhere. He knew that about God. But he, he tries. He tries to go somewhere far away to forget his ministry, to forget his calling, to forget Israel, and to stay away from, above all else, from Nineveh. What you would discover as you read through this book is that no prophet in the entire Old Testament, and listen to carefully, no prophet in the entire Old Testament had the level of success that Jonah had. You read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read the life of prophet Elijah, Elisha. Read any prophet you want, and none of them had the success that Jonah had. It's quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. Jonah, this recalcitrant prophet, this, this apathetic towards the calling of God, received such a blessing on his ministry. He was unwittingly serving his own interests because he wanted nothing to do with the sailors or with Nineveh. He wanted nothing to do with his ministry at this stage of his life. Jonah is the unwilling protagonist in everything that plays out in this book. From the first chapter to the last chapter, you see a miserable, unhappy, unwilling Jonah. It's really something. And yet, throughout this book, you see people repenting, people praying, people calling on God, converting. It's really something. Had Jeremiah seen that in his day, we would have had a different book. Had Isaiah seen that, Ezekiel, Elijah, but none of them did. Jonah. <laughs> it's really something. The whole thing is quite surprising. While Jonah's ministry is met with brokenness and humility and belief, the other prophets' ministry were met with unbelief and stubbornness. And the other thing that stands out is that Jonah doesn't care. He actually doesn't care. He's come to a point in his ministry where he is um, shockingly apathetic. He's disinterested. Doesn't care what happens to the sailors. Doesn't care what happens to the Ninevites. He doesn't even care at this point what happens to Israel. Because Israel has been rebellious. It has been uh, idolatrous and has been worshiping in a state of apostate and apostasy, has been worshiping false gods for years, and he has gotten enough of this. There's no repentance. There's no change in the life 
of Israel, and now he has to go to Nineveh? No way. That's not going to happen. He just doesn't care. When they ask him, why did you do this? What could he have said? You disgust me. Is that what he could have said? What's he going to say? I don't care about you. I don't want you saved. I want my people saved. Not you. So while he wasn't in the least bit concerned about the, the sailors or the Ninevites or his people for that matter because he had run away, God was at work in the lives of these sailors. It's really remarkable to see. I entitled this message, as I said at the outset, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, based on a song that he wrote. William Cooper. William Cooper was a very good friend of John Newton, who composed, by the way, uh, Amazing Grace. He was also a pastor at Olney, once a slave trader himself, and a friend of um, Wilberforce, who fought slavery as a parliamentarian. Anyways, William Cooper struggled with depression for most of his life. And in his later days, he often would struggle. He would come and have such strong bouts of depression that he would refuse to go to church. He refused, and he would say, I cannot darken the shadow of the door, my friend John. He would say, I cannot, I cannot. He felt he wasn't worthy to come and celebrate God's goodness with God's people. That's how depressed and despondent he was. But he penned one of the most powerful hymns. The one we know very well is, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. But the hymn that I really treasure, it has a few stanzas, but I'm only going to show you two. And listen to the words he penned. This man was a brilliant man. He had a brilliant mind. And he penned in ways that few others could. In 1773, he wrote, God moves in our mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, for God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. William Cooper did not understand why he had bouts of depression, why he would sink into this state over and over. He was a believer and loved the Lord. He didn't understand it. But his depression was a trigger for him to write these words. I don't understand everything. I don't understand God's ways. He is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. Why did God use such a recalcitrant prophet, such a servant who was disinterested? Why? Jonah. He could have chosen anyone else, maybe much more willing to go. But God uses such a man with all his brokenness, with all his faults, and uses him to bring about not only an amazing awakening in the lives of these men, as we're going to see next week, but then also a miracle in Nineveh. God does move in a mysterious way. Now, what is happening in your life right now? What is going on? Maybe you feel downcasted. Maybe you feel troubled. And, and uh, you feel that things are not going the way. And you say, God's not answering my prayers. If you're a child of God, 
God is at work in your life. There's no question about it. And he will make it plain. He is his own interpreter. You cannot see it right now. Jonah could not understand what God was doing. At the end, you'll find out, not at the end, or later on, you'll find that he wants to die. He said, just throw me overboard. Don't worry. It'll be okay. That's how much he didn't want to continue with his ministry. Throw. He could have said, I surrender. <laughs> I'll go <laughs> on the ship and storm would just, boom, would have stopped. He says, throw me in, just throw me, let me die. What kind of a servant is that? That's who God is using. So through all this, God reveals his sovereignty, that he rules over all, and that nothing, nothing escapes his sovereign rule, nothing. Two, God reveals his power in sending a mighty and terrifying storm, for indeed, he is the one who plants his footstep in the sea. He is the, author, the, the, the God of the sea. Three, God reveals his mercy by not treating his servant according to his folly. What did his servant deserve? Well, you read scriptures, when a prophet sins, they die. And here was a man who was living in disobedience, and God spared him, as we're going to see later on. God reveals his grace by creating awe in the hearts of the godless sailors. They were terrified. That's a good place to be, by the way. When we're terrified of God, that's a good place because after terror comes repentance. Too many just say, oh, I want to receive Jesus without understanding that they are first to be terrified. There is judgment. The wrath of God is real. And when they re realize this and there's terror, then there can be a proper response. I surrender. I repent. I humble myself before you, almighty God. And that's what happens to these men, as we're going to see next week. Let us thank him for his grace and for his ways. Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough for the way you work in our lives and for how your word speaks to us so accurately, so vividly. This is not a dead book, an antiquated book that makes no sense. It is a living book and it makes perfect sense because you speak to us in such clear and unequivocal way. We thank you for that. We bless you, O oh God. We give ourselves over to you. We ask for grace as you gave these men grace to repent and be in awe of you. I pray that you would give grace so that we would be in awe of you. I pray that you would cause in our hearts to, indeed a desire to love you and fear you so we'd have this healthy balance. Deliver us from this uh, false idea that we could just love God and God is a God of love and he, can, he will never judge anyone, deliver us from all kinds of heresies, cause us to walk in truth, cause us to walk in obedience. May we be obedient to you as we read your word. Indeed, Lord, we look around us and we have many reasons for which to be afraid. There is terror on every side. And the older we get, Lord, the more 
our fear of what may happen in the future intensifies. We need grace, O oh Lord, so that indeed we pray like David, unite our hearts to fear your name, so that the more we fear you, O oh Lord, the less we will be afraid of what may happen to us. Reveal yourself to those who still are in darkness. Draw them to yourself. May your Holy Spirit show us the supremacy of Christ so that the gospel would be indeed good news and not just some fable. May the cross be our glory, I pray, at a time like this. And this we ask in the precious and the most glorious name of our Lord. Amen.